invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We'll study verses 1 through 7. Maybe take also a bookmarker and mark Titus, chapter 1. We'll study verses 5 through 11. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Titus, chapter 1. 5 through 11. This morning in the life of our church, we are facing the election of an elder. This is significant. This is something that your ruling elders believed was good, decent, orderly, and in the best interest of the entire body of Christ here gathered as Covenant Fellowship Church. And so, as we turn our attention to the election of an elder this morning, it's only appropriate that we study the Bible's own instruction regarding what an elder is. And so, let us read the Word of God together. Please note that I'm reading from the New American Standard. It's a little bit more clear with some of the language in the text that we have. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not be conceited, and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, a husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word teaches us that though it is ancient, it is relevant today, and that you've given it to your church as a standard for life and faith. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us as a congregation, that your word would unite us, that, Lord, we would see Christ's glory, that we would delight to see him bless his church with officers, and, Lord, that we would be a people who would study the peace and the purity of the church 
in the keeping of the vows that we took before you and with one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What do you think an elder is? What is his calling and what is the nature of his office? This has been and these have been regular questions that the church has faced regarding the day-to-day -day order of the body of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, God has given us direct and clear answers specifically to these questions in the Bible. And he's done so through the Apostle Paul. And Paul was writing these letters, both 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, to pastors, young pastors, in churches in foreign countries, establishing baby churches as church planters, seeking to have order and to be diligent in the keeping of God's people. Doesn't that sound exactly like our church? Friends, I think that it does. And so, as we study this this morning, even more than some churches, this has particular relevance to us. And it ought to instruct us and encourage us as we take to electing an elder after our morning service. Three things that I want you to see about the elder. The first of them in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he has a burden. He has a burden. The second in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 9, he is godly. He is godly. And then the third, from Titus 1, 9, 10, and 11, he has a task. He has a task. And so as we turn our attention to the text before us, you may take note that as we read them, they are very similar, though they are not identical. The Apostle Paul, in both of these letters and in each of these verses, he's talking specifically to the election of what we as Presbyterians would call the elder. The elder. But that's not exactly the only place he begins. Instead, in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he begins this section on the qualifications of the elder by addressing the office itself. He wants us to understand its nature and the gravity of its task. He writes, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, again, this is a term used exchangeably with elder, we'll talk about that in a moment, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. It is a fine work that he desires to do. And so the first thing I want to say to this is simply this, that this office is described by its title. He's tipping the cards to tell you what an elder is like. And the first thing that we read here in the passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that it is described as being an episcopos, translated an overseer, a watchkeeper, someone who's a warden over the people of God. And you may be familiar, you know about denominations. You've worshipped in many. This is a Presbyterian church. Maybe you've worshipped in an Episcopalian church. They translate this as bishop. They understand it as a third office so that there would be bishop, elder, deacon. But Presbyterians believe that the Apostle Paul speaks of one office describing it as episkopos and presbyteros interchangeably. You may have noticed as we read Titus chapter 1, that in verse 5, he told Titus that he left him to appoint elders 
presbyteros, in every city as he directed. And then in verse 7, he describes the presbyteros as episkopos, the overseer, the watchkeeper, the warden of the people of God. And it's interchangeable. And what I want to tell you is he's describing the character of the office, what the office is like. And whenever an episkopos is spoken of, the image of a shepherd is implied to the minds of God's people. Because what does a shepherd do? Well, he keeps sheep. Specifically, he watches over the sheep. When the sheep are grazing, he watches them to defend them from danger. Whenever they are sleeping, he watches over them, keeping watch late into the night, giving of himself sacrificially as a burden for their well-being. An elder is an overseer, a man who keeps watch, a shepherd whose eye is fixed on the people of God. But pastor, we're talking about elders, and we're talking about electing someone and calling them an elder. What does elder mean? The word presbyteros. In the most basic terms, it means an older person. We see elders in the midst of the people of God going all the way back into the Old Testament. Moses being overwhelmed with a complaining church called Israel cried out to the Lord and said, just let me die. He's overwhelmed. And what did the Lord say in response? Did he say, okay, there's a tree. Go lay under it and pass. Have your rest. No, instead he makes him a Presbyterian. He gives him elders. He says, you go and you call the people together and you tell them to appoint elders out of their number. And you bring them back and you lay hands on them and you co-labor alongside them with this complaining people. An elder is a man who has authority to minister to the people of God. That's why he's described as elder or older man, someone who has a word that matters, who demands respect and has a right to speak like a father into the lives of the people of God. That's why he's titled elder. He doesn't distinguish his age. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a young man, even whom he said, let no one despise you for your youth, rather the term presbyteros or elder speaks to his authority. And so you get something of what the office is like. It's, it's one of responsibility, one of burden for the people of God. It's one of watch care. It's one of direction. It's one of constancy. And the Apostle Paul describes it in these terms. He calls it a kalos ergon, a Beautiful work, literally, in the original Greek. The New American Standard calls it a fine work or a fine burden. It could also be described as a pleasant task. I don't know how many of you conduct work and think, well, that was beautiful. Maybe you do. The painter obviously has beautiful work. The goal is to produce a beautiful thing. The architect, the builder, the craftsperson, they do beautiful things, but the work in itself can be laborious, hard, maddening, exhausting. A thing that causes them to sacrifice and to be separated from other people. It's a difficult thing. But when we speak about the work of the elder as a shepherd, as someone that moves into the midst of the people of God for their care, it's a hard thing to think that it is a beautiful task. I mean, just think for a moment, just citing Moses and his experience at the pastoral ministry to cry out to the Lord, Lord, let me die. Would he have accepted the idea of the beautiful work, the fine burden, or the pleasant task? What makes this beautiful? Is it because the minister can preach? The elder is good at administration and he's impressive to look on. What's beautiful about it? Well, I'll tell you this, friends. It's not that. It's Jesus. 
the task is only beautiful in that the elder imitates Jesus. He looks on to what Jesus did as he walked in the midst of a people that hated him, hated his authority, hated the truth. Even the people who would be redeemed, they're the ones that hung him on the cross. And he walked self-sacrificially in strength and courage, and he led them to the Father. The elder's task is beautiful if he pursues Jesus in it, because Jesus is the beautiful redeemer of sinners. But it's a work. It's not a work there by which you are justified. It's not works righteousness in any way, but it is work. It is the work of a shepherd, and it's work that gets your hand bitten by sheep. It's work that takes you away from your family to pursue the wandering sheep and the lambs. It's work that puts you out under the blazing heat of the sun so that you feel shriveled and exhausted as you labor for the keeping of the flock of your master. It's work that's laid upon the shoulders of the life of a man called by God. It's not easy. Often it's not pleasant. But if it is bound on Christ, it is beautiful work. Why does the Apostle Paul make this distinction? Why is he telling you this? Why am I emphasizing this to you? I think it's because that we live in a day where many consider that to be elected or nominated for that matter, to be an elder, that that is an honor, that it's an award, that it's a recognition of the things that a man has done. It's like a gift that he gets. He gets to stand in front of everybody and we make lots of pomp and circumstance about him, about his spiritual progress. And so we give him a religious promotion. We give him a public title and we pay to him the honor, the adoration that could be due to someone that bears office. That's not what Paul has in mind. It's not the thanks given to a man for the things that he's done. Rather, it is a burden laid on his shoulders like a yoke upon an ox. It's labor that he's called to do that if he does not do it, he's accountable to God for condemnation on your behalf. It's not easy. It's not light. Very often, it's absolutely unpleasant. But it is what the Lord has appointed for the keeping of the lives and the souls of his people. Shepherds have always been the men who have led the flock of the people of God, whether it was David or the Lord Jesus Christ or elders in the church today. And it's a beautiful task and a beautiful work and a heavy burden that is laid upon him. It's going to take the elder from his hobbies, things, things that he's free to do every day of the week, just as a normal person. From the fishing that he'd like to do. From the cycling that he enjoys. From the free exercise of the right of his life that has no bearing on righteousness or unrighteousness, his call as an elder, if it demands of him that he be there in the lives and the mess of the people of God, he's to be there in the work and accountable to it and not on his own business. It takes him even from his family. That's why the apostle makes so much mention to the household of elders. He's going to get pulled away from them. They're his first responsibility. The church is his second. There will be meals that he misses because he's in the session room. 
There will be things that he has to be absent from so that he can be with broken marriages and struggles of faith and disciplinary issues so that he is a man being pulled and compelled by his vows to be faithful to God in the care of the people who are the church. It's going to expose him to the anger, the criticism, the rebellion, the slander of insubordinate people and sheep. That's hard, but it's reality. It's a heavy burden, and it is a burden that elders are called to bear. And it weighs upon the mind and the heart and the soul, and it's going to require of the elder to do the work that is called to him by his office and to bear that burden every single day of the rest of his life. If his ordination doesn't wash off. It is a permanent thing that the Lord has established in his church for the good of his people. Now, if it was an honor, if it was an award, if it was a recognition, who would want that but that a man is called? Who would want to have to answer for the state of his brothers before a righteous God? The elder has a burden. One of the things that I've noticed is that the session that we have has labored admirably. In the day that we had their ordination a year ago, they could tell. They didn't know what this would be like. But they've learned what it is to be an elder. And they keep their vows out of love for Christ and out of a call to you. And as we consider the election of another elder today, the very same thing is what we are describing and discussing and studying. Placing a burden on a man and making him even more accountable to God on your behalf. The second thing I want you to see in the text is that the elder... He is godly. Something that I hope would go without even much discussion is that in both of these passages, he is described. It's a man that's described. He is the husband of one wife. He keeps his household well. He is the man who must be respectable, hospitable, able to teach, temperate, prudent. And he must not be one who has all things around him crumbling down, being given to much wine, and a man out of control. It's a man. I don't want to labor the point beyond that too much. I just want to point it out. In both texts, when the Bible speaks of the office of the elder, it speaks of men. And the things that we see in the passages, both of them, is that the Apostle Paul uses language to describe the qualities or qualifications of men. If they are to be elders, they must be this and they must not be that. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you don't like exclusive language. You don't like requirements. And being a people that understand the gospel of grace... You really don't like language of must and must not. And some of you chafe at this. And how do I know? Because I preached on this over a year ago and I had people complain to me about must and must not. I want to direct your attention that that's not my language. That's the standard of God in the scriptures. These are not the things I think a man should be. These are the things that God demands that a man should be or must not be if he is to be an elder. So if your fight is with anybody, it's one that should be conducted on your knees in prayer with the author of the scriptures who carried holy men along by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, when he describes this to Timothy and to Titus, he says, 
Firstly, that he must be above reproach. Above reproach. The description of this is that he is not a man open to an accusation. People say, who's, who's free of that? Who can match that? That's a, that's a perfect level. He, are you saying perfectionism? The answer is no. The Bible is completely clear that all men are sinners and it doesn't exempt officers. But is the man in open and unrepentant sin? Will someone come and say, hey, you know, I understand he's been nominated, but that guy drinks terribly and gets out of control and destroys his household. I know he's been nominated as an elder, but I mean, the guy stole something. You see, this is what's being talked about. It's the question of being above reproach so that there's not an open accusation to be brought against a man if he's to be an elder. This man is unholy. He's done this thing, that thing, specifically, that a charge would be brought against him. It's not saying that he's perfect. Hear me, friends. He is not saying that he must be perfect. And I emphasize that because, again, there was charge brought last time that there was a perfectionism. There's not, but there is a high standard. And it's not different than the standard that every Christian ought to have. We ought to be a people above reproach, striving for holiness and putting our sin to death. Running away from unholiness and trying everything we can by the Lord's means that have been appointed to avoid a life of ungodliness. It must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. There have been a number of different discussions regarding this. Some people say it means he has to be married. I don't know if it has to mean that. Some will say it means he can never have been divorced. Quite possibly. And I think that's a question of conviction. I think particularly it speaks to the biblical context of men having more than one wife being married to one, two, three, four, five wives at the same time. He has one wife. Generally. That's at least what it means if it does not exclude men who have been married to multiple spouses. He's temperate. That means he's controlled in his emotions and in the things that he says. He's prudent or wise in the actions that he takes. He's not a fool doing things according to his own opinion, but rather things that have been guided by the teaching of Scripture and the wisdom that can be compelled to the minds of men who are under Christ Jesus. He's respectable in that he handles himself in a way that people simply say, yes, I am willing to receive the correction that comes from him and the comfort that is offered whenever I am distraught and beaten down. He's hospitable. His home is open. His time is open. His life is open. And he's a man that opens himself and all that he has to other people. He's able to teach. We could put two words together and make good sense of it. Able to teach. Able to instruct other people in what the word of God means. Able to stand without getting such stage fright that he has to sit. Able to fill the pulpit if necessary. Able to teach Sunday school. Able to sit on the couches of the members of the church and open the Bible and take and apply it with some clarity. He's gentle. I think you know what gentleness means. He doesn't beat you up. He's not harsh to you whenever you deserve that harshness or even when you don't. He's peaceful in that he doesn't go around and stir people up and peaceable within the church so that he puts out fires and applies cold compresses. He's free from the love of money so that he's not driven in all that he does simply by further pursuit of wealth. He manages his own household well. His children are believing. Why is this so important? 
Well, it is because the elder's first call is to the little church that meets in his home. To the well-being of his wife and his children. Because how can a man be free? How can he ever care for the church if his own household is in an uproar? And in times, this can be a thing well beyond the hands of a man. This can be something that an elder comes and faces. and You know, he's ordained. His children are small or his children are making good professions. And they seem to be showing good fruits. And everything is good in his home. And he's ordained and he's installed. Yet years go by and he has to come to his brothers and simply say, I need to focus at home. I need to invest myself in my household before I can care for the household of God. It's important because it is the question of is he free for spiritual care? Or does he have bigger things to do, things that regard his household? Now some people will read this and they'll say, well, he can't have a three-year-old that runs around the sanctuary. can restrain a three-year-old, please give me lessons. It's about spiritual care, spiritual freedom. It's about his freedom to care for the families of others. Have a good reputation outside of the church. He must have a good reputation outside of the church. Again, this has to do with him being above reproach, but also it has to do with his evangelistic witness. Can the lost hear him and not say his testimony is invalid because he's a jerk? He's detestable. He's the worst boss. I'm not a believer. I'll never be a Christian because look at how he acts. The apostle said he must be a man who loves what is good. Loves what is good. He must be sensible so that he hears. He's got ears that are open and that listen to other people, even, even if they're wrong or even if they're right, and is able to act self-critically and in accord to the gentle correction and urging of others. He's just. It means he's fair. He's a man that studies the justice of God and wants to see it carried out. Not a man who's given to fits of anger and acts out of rage. He's holy. He's like the Lord. He's holy. Again, he's not perfect, but he's laboring after holiness. He's taking up the sword of the word and he is... Pursuing his sin to kill it by the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing he must be is he must be a man that is holding fast to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. What does that mean? It means he believes his Bible first and He believes his Bible. He studies his Bible. He weighs everything by his Bible. He's a man that's guided in all that he does by his Bible. And he holds it fast. He's not wavering on the essentials of the faith. Nor is he out of accord with the teaching of his church. And you say, Paul is not Presbyterian. Not a Presbyterian church in the New Testament. I would say maybe we have different views of that. You'll say there's no confession of faith. What does he mean? The accordance of the teaching. It means that he's a man that is comfortable with what is taught in his church. He holds it and can teach it. How could a man be an officer in a church and expect it to teach if he doesn't believe the things that that communion believes? It doesn't make sense. It's just setting everybody up for discord, confusion, and disunity. Holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. 
There is plenty of diversity in our church, and that is perfectly fine. But friends, you attend here because your officers teach one thing in an unconfused manner. And I've heard that testimony from so many of you. We agree on the essentials, on non-essentials. There is diversity. But friends, trust me, you want unity, even on non-essentials with your officers. So there's peace and order and consistency. Now, those are the things he must be. He must be. What about the things he must not be? And I'll say, I don't think too many of us are going to get all that worked up about the things he must not be. You wouldn't want elders that are like this. He must not be addicted to wine. Or a man accused of, as the NASB says, dissipation. Nobody uses that English word, debauchery. Fewer people use that one. Open to the accusation of living a lawless life of sin, a life of drinking and other abuses that are done in public. He must not be that kind of man. Not an alcoholic, not an out-of-control man according to the sin, so that he's always being dominated and mastered by it. He's not pugnacious, another word not used very often. What does it mean? It means he must not be a bully. Violent, pushing people around, whether it's family members, whether it's strangers, whoever it is. He must not be a bully. He must not be a new convert. He must not be a new convert. Why does the Apostle Paul say he must not be a new convert? Well, it's so that he does not become conceited puffed up in himself, and fall into the, the condemnation incurred by the devil. Where it's all about him. It's all about his power, his goodness, his giftedness, and his progress. That's not what he's to be. He's to be a mature man in the faith. Not a man who's still a new believer. He must not be rebellious or insubordinate. The word there that's used is there in Titus, and it's uh, repeated a couple of times. It relates also to the self-controlled language uh, that is, is there in, in Titus, as the Apostle Paul uh, writes. Must not be rebellious or insubordinate. I've had some say to me, well, I want to be an elder, I want to be a deacon because I want to be able to have a voice. The things that I don't like in the church or the things that I would do differently. I want to be there to see those things differently affected. But once they're being told, I want to go and do something different than all of the session wants to do. What they're doing, I don't like. I think we ought to do something different. And so what I want to do is go and change it. That's at the most basic level what insubordination is described as. But where does this get played out? Well, it gets played out in the church by speaking and whispering about the church, by going person to person, undercutting the session of elders and the pastor and the ministry. And you say, but isn't there a checks and balances? And friends, I simply want to say, yes, there is, and it's called the presbytery. But do you want officers that are turned against one another in discord in the leadership of the church so that the church rips itself apart because there's one person who thinks that it needs to be done this way and the rest of the session thinks it needs to be done this way? No, there's unity. And what does a good, healthy group of officers look like? It doesn't look like a bunch of yes men. It looks like a bunch of mature Christians who love Jesus and love each other. You come and you're welcome to come to any session meeting of this church. Do you know what you're going to see? You're going to see men that love each other. Who pray together for you. Who pray together for one another. Who when we disagree, we submit our hearts to each other so that we can be corrected. And convinced. And moved. Lovingly. We're not yes men. We're men in love with Christ. And 
bound by love for one another and for the church. The checks and balances come willingly. The accountability is freely given by the vows that we take. It's not a thing undercut by political fashion or by force or by gathering as many other people who also think this way and try to force the leaders to do this, that, or another thing. Must not be rebellious or insubordinate. He must not be quick-tempered and fly off of the hook at the smallest thing. And he must not be fond of sordid gains so that people look and either give him gifts or do him favors because they feel as if they have a voice in him or they give him praise and he loves it and that's why he labors because he's a man that wants the approval of other people. There are things that the Bible says an elder must be and things that the Bible says an elder must not be. These are not from your session. These are from the scriptures. This isn't my opinion. This is the Bible's teaching. And I encourage you, friends, that as we consider the election of an elder, that you consider these things. And you, most of you, are a church that have sat through two and a half years of teaching on the church officership. Many of you men have gone through the entire course of training, and you know very well what we're talking about. These are not foreign things to you. This is not new. This is well-trod ground that you as a church have been exposed to and taught for four years with consistency and without variation in this church. Why is that? Before I move on, because whenever I was called to this church, I was called to a church that didn't have elders or deacons. I was called to a church that didn't have a youth group, that didn't have a children's group. I was called to a faithful church that had morning and evening worship and a prayer meeting and the Lord was blessing it and we were growing. But there were things left undone that the Lord in his good and kind providence did not accomplish in the first portion of the ministry of this church, though it was faithful. And blessed. And for me, part of my commission that I believe I have been in this church for is verse 5 of Titus 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, I was left in Stuttgart, that you should set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, in this city, as the scriptures have directed why this isn't new to you, because it's been at the very core of the ministry that I've attempted to conduct in the midst of it. The third thing you have in the scriptures is that he has a task. The elder has a task, and it's described in Titus 9 through 11 of chapter 1 of Titus. So that... Elder has all of these things so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He has a task. He's to be a man that leads the people of God by the ear, by the mind, and by the heart. He teaches true doctrine. He is a, supposed to be able to exhort. What does the language of exhortation in the Bible mean? It means to press truth to your hearts and to say, you must do this. That's what it means. 
to bind the conscience by the word of God. Not by the teaching of men, but by the word of God. There's one thing that can bind the conscience of any person. The word of God can demand things of you. And that's the elder's task. To teach good and sound doctrine to the people of God so that you're raised up in strong faith, so that your love is made deeper and sweeter, that your grip of Christ is stronger and laid upon more permanently with an unshakable assurance. That's part one of his task. And the second part is so much less pleasant, but it's reality. I just want to say, notice this is where the Apostle Paul explains the elder. This isn't me jumping to another text. To exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Paul says there are those, many, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party describing a legalism. You must be circumcised or you can't be saved. A legalism. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. But they ought not to teach. Now that's harsh and it sounds hard, but it's in the Bible and you have to deal with it because it's God's word. It's there. An elder has to be equipped to teach what's true and then to refute what is false. You should expect that your elders may be heard saying, actually, that's not the truth that the Bible teaches. And then with patience and kindness and strength and courage, he opens the Bible, even as he's saying to a brother or a sister in Christ, no, that's not the best act. And then showing them from the scriptures and laboring, you should expect that of your elders. Your elders are not political representatives that parrot the things that you think they're Christ's men called by him. And they bear his word in their mouths to your ears. That's what they are. Elders have to say no. In a church as diverse as ours, that's okay as long as it's done in gentleness and kindness. And the grace of the cross is always at the forefront. And the love of Christ always expressed. Never like a hammer to crush. But nonetheless done so that words and teachings that ought not to be taught, that disturb the church are brought into silence. And it sounds harsh, especially verse 11. They must be silenced. Why does it sound harsh to us? Because we listen to movies and songs that use language in reckless ways, but this is the Bible. And so if you can take and pluck yourself out of that and just simply say the Apostle Paul is meaning here so that false teaching isn't taught. Why? So that the families in the church aren't upset and disunity is sown in the congregation. And so that people who would like to teach things that are out of accord with what the church believes are not men just gathering groups to themselves for their own ends. It's for unity. It's for peace in the church. For one body bound in the love of Christ, uniting over the truths that they confess, keeping their vows for the peace and the purity of the church, and elders pursuing it and defending it. It's what we want in our church because it's what the Bible wants for the church. It's what the Lord has appointed for us. And friends, today as we consider the election of an elder, I want to encourage you to think over these things and to subject your hearts to them as you vote. Men, submit yourselves to this. 
you're a Christian man, submit yourselves to this, hold yourself to this standard. Some of you may say, well, it's a high standard. It's a high standard. Actually, this is the least standard. <clears throat> this is the least standard. And this can be said of every single Christian man or woman to study. It is a simple call to walk and live like Jesus. Submit yourself to this man. Study this. Desire this beautiful task, this beautiful burden, this pleasant work. And submit yourselves to it. And if you find yourself as a man who says, well, my heart is out of accord in this or that, well, maybe recognize if you're a member of this church, submit your views to these things and pursue them. Engage in your own heart and run this down so that if the Lord would call you to be an officer, you would not be out of accord with what the Bible requires of officers. I plead with you men in the church, I plead with you, this church would be so much more healthy. This church would be so much more happy. This church would be so much more unified if you were men pursuing this standard. Because what are you pursuing? Jesus. Jesus. To be near to him in the service of his people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. You tell us that all scripture is breathed out by your holy mouth. That all of it is authoritative. That all of it is useful for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. That it's inscrutable. Unquestionable. Not because of the authority of men or preachers or elders, but because you have authority. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work in our church and help us to be a people that would desire your glory and the good of one another through the truth of your word. Heavenly Father, be with us as we continue to worship you. And draw our hearts to Christ, that we might have our hearts drawn to one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.